and welcome back. Uh, first question, it says, I watched the movie What is a Woman by Matt Walsh. This is a perfect example of people not knowing what truth is. All through the movie, Walsh asked, what is a woman? But no one can give him an answer. The world has lost the idea of what it means to know the truth. Can you comment? So this particular loss of, of objective truth or reality is a fruit of something that's been going on for a long time. You don't get there in one step. This is the progression and uh, outworking of teaching generations in our school system there's no God, that we evolve from lower life forms. There is no objective standard. Scripture is just mythical, old, magical books written up by superstitious people. And when you decouple the minds of people from objective biblical reality, then you open them up to fantasies of all kinds. And this is what it says in Thessalonians, that uh, at the end, the, the wicked are destroyed because... They did not love the truth and thus be saved, and thus they were given over to strong delusion to believe a lie. So on any subject matter, you have truth that you can accept or reject. Doesn't matter what it is. Pick any subject matter. If the truth is such and such and you reject it, what's the only thing left for your mind to rest upon? Fantasy, lies, falsehood. And this is why this is happening, because people, generations have been trained now to believe things that are fantasy and falsehood, and there's no standard whereby to check anything out. So, so, uh, so and this next one is actually very helpful. It's clarifying a point, I guess it was in last week's class, and let me just read it, and then I will um, comment. It says, John Wycliffe was, wasn't burned at the stake, he died of natural causes of old age. God chose to protect him from martyrdom. However, he was put under house arrest. The church leaders were bitter that they didn't get to kill him, so they exhumed his grave and burnt his bones to ashes and spread them in a river. Okay? So, uh, and so, yeah, I mentioned Wycliffe. I was actually thinking of Tyndale uh, that, uh, that translated the Bible in English and was burned at the stake and, and uh, got that confused. Well. So thank you for that, clar- that, that clarification. Appreciate that. Uh, I enjoyed your presentation of end-time prophecy on June 3, um, lesson 12, second quarter. Can you explain how this box, is, I think, fits with second, second Selected Messages, page 368, the scriptures teach that popery will regain. And so I, I looked that up because this one came in early, and uh, this is the... Um, second selected messages um, actually starts, the paragraph starts on 267, goes into 268. Here, the great crisis is coming upon the world. The scripture teaches that popery is to regain its lost supremacy and that the fires of persecution were rekindled through the time-serving concessions of the so-called Protestant world. In this time of peril, we can stand only as We have the truth and the power of God. Men can know the truth only by being themselves partakers of the divine nature. We need now more than human wisdom, etc., etc. Okay, so what does this mean? Popery. So the word popery, notice it was popery, P-O-P-E-R-Y, not the stuff that smells good. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, And this can mean the Roman Catholic Church. It can mean the Roman Catholic doctrines or ceremonies, but it can also mean this, its system of government. Popery can refer to its system of government. Yeah. So we will consider how this same author in um, Letters and Manuscripts, um, Volume 14, used this term popery in this. And I want you to listen how this is used here. 
We are to carry out the principles of Protestantism. Pause. Does that mean we are to, to carry out the doctrines of Protestantism? Are doctrines and principles the same? What are the principles of Protestantism? Freedom of conscience, civil and religious liberty, and the authority of Scripture over tradition. Aren't these the principles of Protestantism? Yes. Okay. So we're to carry out the principles, authority of Scripture, but leave other people free, and we have religious and civil liberty. That's Protestant principles. We are to carry out the principles of Protestantism. Next word. Popery is represented all around us. And unless every eye is singled to the glory of God, this enormous system of popery will be interwoven with our faith and practice. Hear what she's saying here, folks. The system of popery, religious authoritarianism, controlling and coercing consciences, will be interwoven with our faith and practice. Just as far as any of its deluded principles and practices shall insinuate themselves into our religious management and organizations, we are disabled and weakened and hindered from doing our first work in personal reformation of character, for the principles of the papacy are directly opposed to religious freedom, and wherever they are cherished, an effort is made to control the conscience. Now, a couple of things. Popery here stands for the principle of authoritarian rule and coercive enforcement. And she says popery can come into our faith and practices, even while we throw stones at the papacy, if we practice religious authoritarianism and coercion of consciences, then popery is becoming dominant again, even while we do it on Sabbath. Yes. I think it's important to mention that we don't necessarily hate Catholics. We just hate the system that, that we don't we don't appreciate the system that it, it represents. Thank you for that. No, like hundred percent. The same author said the majority of God's true saints are found in the other churches. So, yes, so exactly. We're not talking about individual people. There are many good, faithful people in the system. We're talking about, the, again, the system of, of authoritarian, coercive rule that ruled in the Dark Ages over the nations of, of Europe and this management of coercive enforcement of conscience. And we saw the principles of popery, of the papacy, act strongly in the Seventh-day Adventist church organizations during COVID. When the system coerced its employees to violate their consciences, further, we saw it at the special general conference meeting in which the leadership used its authority of office to misrepresent facts and prevent the delegates from actually discussing what happened during COVID. This was authoritarian rule. Understand. So in our discussion of the beast, to answer the question that the person put forth, our discussion of the beast... The first beast of Revelation, the chameleon beast with the seven heads, one head was wounded, uh, identified that in its papal phase during the Dark Ages using the, the ten powers of the, of, the, uh, of the beast that we identified to coerce consciences and control for 1260 years. But that same beast in other parts of the world, it's a chameleon. When its a Muslim head is controlling, it persecutes the saints in Muslim lands. When its godless head is controlling in, in um, 
in uh, the communist countries that persecutes the saints. So this beast is a chameleon beast that used the same ten horn powers with different, different groups running it. But the popery gains its lost supremacy, according to that quote that was referenced here. The popery is to regain its lost supremacy through the image to the beast that the beast with lamb-like horns makes. And the image to the beast is the global system we talked about, the beast of Revelation 17. And they will use those same principles of course of a conscience of people, which is popery. But it doesn't mean that the papal system is going to run that beast. In fact, it, it won't. It will just be part of it. Yes. Just a brief follow-up. You know, it's, it's exciting that we know so much cool stuff. And I think with God's help, we, we don't come across superior because Satan fooled a third of the angels. And it's easy sometimes being frustrated with, especially your own church family that's still into this, you know, unhealthy teaching and belief. So hopefully, you know, Jesus had this tears in his voice and you wonder if that's what converted Nicodemus. Joseph Arathia. Yeah, you had a comment. Uh, uh, one of the conferences, just this fellowship, 171 members and disbanded the church. Because? Uh, they didn't quite just agree, just, you know, the authoritarian conference threw all of them out, disfellowshipped everyone, pastor and all. Wow. That's wow. reason. <laughs> yes. One, one thing I think that impresses me is that we are so worried and concentrated on finding out what the Pope is going to do. It is about methods and principles, folks. And this is why we were not taken in during the whole COVID. If you remember, uh, I've said this over and over again. Maybe you're not a scientist. You don't know what the data says. We all can know godly methods or not godly methods. Godly methods, and this is the historic ethics of medicine, we present the, the medical knowledge as we know it, as best we can, explain it to the patient, but then we leave the patient free to make an informed decision. We don't coerce them if they don't want it, and even if a Jehovah's Witness is, has, is bleeding out, and, and we can save them a blood transfusion if they, if they understand and they don't want the transfusion, we don't force them to get a transfusion. We leave them free. That's historic medical, that's the pr- truth, love, and freedom. And it was real obvious during COVID that these methods, it was all types of propaganda, silencing any voices that came with objective data that questioned, just ask honest questions, seeking for answers. It was uh, vilified. And then all types of coercive force was used on people. You didn't have to know the science to recognize that is not the methods of God. Let's see, and it says, it says, oh, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Joel 2, 28 to 32. It says, why does this described as the dreadful day, the great and dreadful day of the Lord? And it said, I will be ble- it will be a blessing. And uh, that's a translation issue. Check, check a variety of translations. Some actually say uh, an awful day. Well, think what awful means. Full of all. It means full of all. And so in the Greek Old Testament, it actually says the great and glorious day of the Lord. So it's the great and glorious day. So it's just a translation issue. Do you think God wants us to feel guilt? Got into a discussion regarding guilt. Some people think that the Holy Spirit causes us to feel guilt. I don't agree. I think that conviction is what changes us. Please give some insight regarding guilt. So guilt, there, okay, so let's talk about guilt. Guilt is to your heart and mind what pain is to your body. When you touch a hot stove, you feel pain. Is the pain that you feel when you touch a hot stove a bad thing? No, it's actually a good thing because it alerts you very quickly that there's something damaging going on. And in fact, in the Bible, one of the metaphors of sin is 
leprosy. Leprosy does not actually damage tissue. Leprosy destroys pain fibers. So a leper will touch a hot stove and not feel pain, and therefore their hand stays on the stove until they smell the flesh burning, and they pull back, much more damage has happened. So, and if you're really sensitive with your pain fibers, you may actually feel the heat before you actually touch the stove and pull your hand back and never get harmed. Okay, this is your conscience. God has given us a conscience. When we do wrong, objective wrong, we feel guilt. Now, does God bring the, does God bring the pain when a person touches a hot stove? No, no. no, but did God design for that to be protective from doing things that injure? And such God designed a conscience that if we do things that violate his moral law, then it, it, it is his will that we feel guilt so that we will pull back from destroying our soul. Okay? But that doesn't mean he brings it. Now, there is another type of guilt that's called false guilt. So appropriate or, or, or genuine guilt is when we've actually done wrong and we are convicted. And the only way to resolve appropriate guilt is through repentance and restoration when it's appropriate to restore. And the repentance is receiving God's grace and getting a new heart and right spirit and turning away, and your heart is changed. You're not the same anymore, and therefore the guilt goes away because you've been reborn, okay? But the inappropriate guilt, you feel the feeling of guilt, but you've actually done no wrong. And that's always a result of some, in psychiatry we call it cognitive distortion, but it's a believing a lie of some kind. And you cannot get rid of inappropriate guilt through repentance and restoration because there's no wrong to repent of or anything to restore. You can only get rid of inappropriate guilt through an application of the truth. And the truth sets you free from the lie that's causing the guilt. And so you have to identify if you're feeling guilt. Have I actually done wrong? And then I need to repent and restore. Or have I actually not done wrong? Therefore, then what's the lie? And I need to apply the truth. And in my book, Could It Be This Simple? I have a chapter that goes through some of these elements and describes how false guilt can really torment people. But uh, so I believe that that just guilt and pain are part of God's design to protect us from injuring either the body or the soul. But it's not uh, a divine act of God to bring it. Is guilt related directly to PTSD? Is guilt related to PTSD? Um, So people who struggle with trauma issues often struggle with guilt, and it can be because they're struggling from trauma after a wrong that they did. They harmed someone, and they have guilt from the harm, and they have trauma from what they did. They actually did something very violent. Or they could be a victim, and in their victimhood, they haven't done any wrong, but often people who have been traumatized internalize the story in a way that blames themselves falsely, and then they have false guilt. So guilt can be an emotional experience there, but it takes a little... um, uh, I guess, discernment to figure out whether, in fact, it's appropriate or inappropriate guilt. You can't just say one or the other. It, circumstances matter. Thank you for the inspiring, refreshing two presentations of the Mark of the Beast. Would you allow me to use, in, uh, use it in my sermon preparation? Can you send me the slides, too? So you're certainly free to use it in the sermon preparation. You have the video, and you have our magazine, and you can download the magazine uh, in a PDF format. And in a PDF format from the magazine, you can do a, a screenshot, and from that screenshot, you can load that into your own PowerPoint and then clip that uh, to make your own images from, from, our, from our thing. But my, my PowerPoint slides are not edited and are not ready for distribution at this point in time. We are planning a Revelation seminar at some point, and this is kind of a rough draft run-through, and at some point when we do the official presentation, as we've done with all our other programs, the video will be there, as well as an audio, as well as my PowerPoint slides once they have been finally approved, but I'm not going to release my slides in their draft format. Regarding the seal of God and mark of the beast, 
since Revelation 14.1 says the 144,000 have the name of God written on their foreheads, and Revelation 7, 3, and 4 says that the 144,000 are sealed on their foreheads, it seems to me the seal of God and God's name, i.e. his character, is what seals the 144,000. Conversely, the worshipers of the beast receive a mark, uh, uh, receive its name, character, and mark in their forehead and hand. Yeah, yes, uh, exactly. The character of God and Satan become the seals and mark respectively. Uh, yes, I agree completely. That's what we presented in our last couple of weeks, that in fact, these are symbolic ways of describing the characters that people form, either in, their, um, in uh, the mark of the beast or the seal of God. Let's see. Uh, just watch your excellent presentation. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. On the seal of God, mark of the beast. And you mentioned you'd appreciate any feedback. You stated that ferocious beasts are, are coercive powers, um, as Satan is a roaring lion, but Revelation 5 5 calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. Um, so is there a difference I'm not seeing, or does it all, uh, not always apply? Thanks. Yes, there actually is a difference. Um, you'll find that um, in, in Revelation 5.5, 5, let's read Revelation 5.5. 5. It says, uh, then the elders, do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of, of David, has triumphed. And so what we're talking about here, if you notice, there is no roaring lion seeking to devour there is a lion as in leader or head. So this lion metaphor is not used to devour or control, but as in the head or leader or king of the beast, the king of the tribe. And that's, that's, that's how it's used in that metaphor. Connecting it out of the root of the branch of David, which is the, the throne where he takes the throne. Most Christians are expecting Christ to rule, reign on earth for a thousand years. Does Revelation give any indication that the Antichrist, Satan, will, will seem pretend to fulfill this expectation? Yeah, I think we went through that last week. I encourage you to watch our class from last week with the uh, beast with lamb-like horns that rises to, uh, to um, uh, impersonate Christ. And most Christians, I think, uh, are going to, and other religions of the world, he will meet their expectations and will be accepted, uh, I think, by world leaders. So yes, I think that's true. My study partner, who has been exposed to design law for several years, has recently joined in with a Jewish rabbi study group online. Uh, in a month, they have come to a question to question the entire New Testament, including Jesus, Lucifer, the writers, etc., uh, etc. Et um, they are honestly trying to find truth. They ha- are having a question to question everything at this point about the Bible, its translation and motives of the translators. Uh, what can we study to help vet the Bible, new and old? They don't like the blood and sacrifice language as that sounds pagan to them. Thank you. Does anybody have clarity on what that question is asking? How do we verify the veracity of the New Testament? Yeah, the, or, or the Bible in general. You know, they're, they're disregarding that. They're starting to disbelieve it. So how would you combat that? I don't really have that question, so I haven't really explored it. But there are many works out there that have verified, and you can approach this from a variety of ways. You can approach it as the New Testament writers did, where they completely and consistently reference all the examples of Christ's life being confirmed, all the examples of the prophecies of the Messiah being confirmed in Christ's life, and they quote the Old Testament throughout the New Testament, repeatedly linking it together. You can explain the metaphors of the sanctuary. I encourage you to look at our metaphors of the sanctuary um, with with our sanctuary lesson that shows all these things 
and what the symbolism actually means, and that it's a beautiful lesson, and you can do that. You can go to some um, historical Christian analysis of the veracity of the testimonies given uh, from an analysis of, of um, how human testimony works, and the, the Gospels um, are... are Ver- um, meet the criteria of what actual human testimony looks like, and it's not a made-up type thing. So there are many different ways that, that, that for me, you can go to the prophecies of Daniel and how um, the uh, time prophecy, the 70 weeks, works out at the, at the appearance of Christ. Uh, so there are many ways to, to validate this. Um, th- what, which, which approach would I take? I would get to know them, their mindset. I would discern what their real objections and concerns are, and I would hit those objections and concerns first. Um, I might start back at, well, tell me what you understand the sin problem is in, 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 in Genesis that the, that the plan of salvation is designed to fix. What do you think the problem is? Because the whole New Testament, the whole Old Testament is the Genesis 3.15. You might start there. Genesis 3.15, a promised Messiah is coming, right? That's the Old Testament narrative. And then the question is, does the New Testament show that that has been the fulfilled from what the Old Testament has been pointing us to? So you might start there and go with that says, is Jonah 4.11's God's right versus left-hand discernment loss characterization pertaining to basic discernment loss available today? Uh, I'd have to look Jonah 4.11 up. Um, do you, anybody know that one off their head? So should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people um, who cannot tell their... Oh, here it is. He quoted it. Uh, should I not care about the great city of Nineveh with 120,000 people who cannot tell their right from their left hand as many cattle as well? So my understanding of the 120,000 people are, it's talking about children. When it says there's 120,000 people who cannot tell their right from the left hand, he's saying the great city of Nineveh has 120,000 children that haven't grown up to tell right from left yet. That's how, and, and so it's, a, and plus a lot of cattle. So he's simply saying to Jonah, have compassion. You want this whole city destroyed. There's 120,000 kids that haven't even been able to figure out right and left yet. How have they even had opportunity to, to discern right from wrong yet? Be compassionate. And besides, there's a bunch of animals and shouldn't be gracious to the animals. You're supposed to govern and have dominion over the land. And why would you want to kill all the animals there? So it's actually a conversation with Jonah about the hardness of Jonah's heart, not showing compassion for many innocents still in the city. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and for the way you are always the God of love, always showing compassion, always seeking to heal. We ask that you will finish your work in our lives now and that we can represent you faithfully and you may come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.